Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this, uh, to this discussion, which the LSE European Institute, uh, of which I'm head, is uh, delighted to have co-organized um, with Standpoint magazine, um, of which I gather copies are available and have been handed out. Perhaps some of you have taken them already. Um, in some ways, Standpoint magazine has uh, stepped into the breach um, after the sad departure of Encounter magazine, which folded in the late 1980s, but um, it is an outstanding publication. You'll forgive the, the plug. I don't see why I shouldn't plug it. They are our partners for our, this, this, this event. And um, uh, a publication of the highest intellectual standards, resolutely committed to, uh, to Western values in the broad, broad sense. And the very values that we'll be um, testing, examining and testing, I'm sure, in the course of our discussion uh, today. So welcome to this health check, ladies and gentlemen, this health check of Western civilization. Um, and yes, I would suggest it's nothing less than that with some of the best physicians available, um, who I will be introducing shortly to, some of the best physicians available to conduct that health check. So what are the symptoms which are giving cause for concern? Well, some would suggest a loss of self-belief uh, for one, manifest in, in inertia, in crippling fatalism in the face of its own, of the West, relative decline in the world, economic and demographic decline, obviously, and some would suggest a lack of American leadership. And I don't just mean military leadership. I mean the lack of intellectual and moral leadership uh, since the displacing of what used to be called Western Civ. Um, in American universities, the Western Civ that was taught in U.S. universities and liberal arts colleges for decades, for generations indeed, until the 1970s um, anyway. Now, what and who was responsible for the displacement of that triumphalist Western narrative? For the, who was responsible for the shelving of the, uh, of the Western canon of quote-unquote, great books, from Homer to Dante, Shakespeare, Moliere, Cervantes, Goethe, Austin, Flaubert. You know, the, you know the cast list very well. Maybe it's no coincidence that the most violent reaction to the Western narrative came in the U.S. Ivy League um, institution starting in the 1960s. Now, for today's, for today's cultural pessimists, amongst whom I may or may not count myself, the intellectual pathologies came in the form of cultural studies, post-colonial studies, gender studies, and African studies, amongst others, all heavily influenced by the critical theory of German Marxists, and also by the overthrow of the classical unities of time and form and action by the French postmodernists. Um, we might also think of the overthrow of the author by deconstructionists who only see hegemonistic discourses where the less cynical see the disinterested authenticity of the artist. Of course, different clinicians diagnose different underlying conditions. Psychiatrists point the finger at the tyranny of guilt. Well, guilt for what, you may ask? Well, there's no shortage of sins, our cultural self-flagellators will tell us. Empire, colonial, colonial oppression, economic plunder, for starters. 
Sociologists diagnose the assault on cultural elitism with the consolidation of democracy, not only of citizens, but also the democracy of consumers in a mass culture, challenging Matthew Arnold's idea of civilization as the sharing and imparting of all that is best of what has been said, uh, said and, and, and done. Um, philosophers see, some philosophers anyway, see the hand of moral relativism. Moral relativism guided by the anthropology of difference, telling us that cultures cannot be judged by the standards of others. To our rogues gallery, we might add the, the dismal calculations of the cost-benefit and, and analysts for whom the humanities and liberal education are optional bolt-ons to economic performance, employability skills, and scientific research. I haven't even mentioned the educationalists and apostles of child-centred learning who see no place for difficult texts in a school's curriculum which seeks to include every child. And the words, you may have noticed, the words political correctness have not even, unusually for me, have not even passed my lips. But I will spare you my perspective from the saloon bar of the dog and duck. Whether these pathologies are external infections or the autoimmune condition, conditions of a self-critical civilization is, must be a, a matter of debate and one which I suspect we will touch on today. Now, there will be those who consider my cursory opening health check unacceptably hysterical, even lurid, maybe even inaccurate. Well, so, for a more sober examination of whether our dumbed-down, guilt-ridden Western civilization is going to hell in a handcart, I now pass the baton first to people I think who are going to be able to give us uh, a far more thoughtful uh, um, uh, appraisal, uh, um, a far more thoughtful health check of Western civilization. I'd like to start, first of all, I would like to invite Sarah, Sarah Churchwell, who's going to speak from her seat. Sarah Churchwell is Professor of American Literature and Public Understanding of the Humanities at the University of East Anglia. She's the author of many books, including Careless People, Murder, Mayhem, and the Invention of the Great Gatsby, which I strongly commend to you, and Many Lives of Marilyn Monroe, and her literary journalism. Sarah's literary journalism has appeared in many publications, in The Guardian, New Statesman, TLS, you name it, New York Times, uh, Book Review, The Spectator, among others. And she's a regular commentator on arts, culture, and politics for UK television and radio, as well as a judge of some of the leading um, literary uh, prizes. So um, without further ado, Sarah, I would like you to share your thoughts on uh, Thank you very much. The... Um, I should warn everyone that I have a bit of a cold. I will try very hard not to cough into the microphone because that's very obnoxious, but if I do, I apologize. Um, so the question that was posed to us, high culture in the Western canon, has the fight back begun? Um, we, uh, Morris was kind enough to send us a few notes um, you know, outlining uh, the kinds of topics that he wanted to address, and um, part of it was um, around the question of, of elite um, works of art and elite uh, education. And so part of the, the beginning of my remarks are um, uh, addressing that question of the elite. Um, I'll start by saying, I'll start by answering the question, though. Uh, has the fight back begun? 
I don't think it's a fight back because I think that presupposes a thesis and an antithesis and that we have two opposing points of view and that one will just fight back against the other. Um, what I want to propose is a more Hegelian dialectical answer that what we have is a new synthesis, that a new synthesis is emerging. And I want to say a little bit about what I see the shape of that new synthesis um, as being and, and why I think it's emerging. The question of the canon and elite works of culture is a fraught one for good reason. First, I think we need to differentiate between two ideas that the word elite conflates, the idea of excellence and the idea of privilege. What has happened over the last 40 or 50 years is that in order to challenge ideas of embedded privilege from a democratic, pluralistic, egalitarian standpoint, ideas of excellence were also challenged. Now, on the one hand, from my point of view, interrogating value judgments about what constitutes excellence and how we define measure or identify it is precisely what people who work with arts and culture need to do. We can't assume universality or transcendence, some kind of platonic accord around our own values. We must be able to question our own premises, to think reflexively and self-critically, to work in the enlightenment tradition of evidence-based judgment rather than invocations to an external authority or a logic of external accountability. But this takes us quickly down a couple of slippery slopes. First, as we move toward our own judgment, we may move toward subjectivity and away from objectivity, encouraging people to begin to make sweeping statements that if all values are relative, they become meaningless. But one of the other slippery slopes is the assumption that this must necessarily be so, that we can only be radically subjective in our own value judgments. But that too, it seems to me, is a debatable proposition. On the other hand, if we try to move toward objectivity, the slippery slope takes us hurtling in the opposite extreme direction, towards efforts to quantify value, or indeed beauty, or pleasure. And it returns us to the logic of an external authority, a god, or a priest, or a master who tells us what to think. And this is precisely the intellectual immaturity, or what Kant called nonage, or nonage, that he argued would need to be cast off in the Age of Enlightenment. And this is what Kant says about this. He says, if I have a book that thinks for me, a pastor who acts as my conscience, a physician who prescribes my diet, and so on, then I have no need to exert myself. I have no need to think, if only I can pay. Others will take care of that disagreeable business for me. And this seems to me a good description of what is sometimes meant today by uh, uh, worries that we are dumbing down. We are letting other people do our thinking for us. Enlightenment... Controte, is man's emergence from his self-imposed nonage. Nonage is the inability to use one's own understanding without another's guidance. Have the courage to use your own understanding is therefore, he says, the motto of the Enlightenment. If this is true, and I think it must be, then we return to the problem of subjective value judgments about what constitutes excellence. It is not easy to measure or quantify excellence, and that makes it difficult to try to universalize which in turn makes it seem subjective and radically relative. So how do we make qualitative judgments without recourse to a spurious quantification, the idea of metrics, so beloved of bureaucrats and university managers? Well, to give an example from my own work, it's very difficult to measure the excellence of the great Gatsby. I don't know how we would do such a thing, and I think it's something of a fool's effort to try. We can have recourse to notions of consensus, and I think on a functional basis as a starting point, that's not as insufficient as it may seem at first glance. 
But none of this actually affects the political effort to expand access to and definitions of the elite. And that's where we come back to questions of privilege. The point about the expansion of the canon from roughly the 1960s onwards is that it recognized for the first time that excellence might indeed be found in voices, perspectives, and arenas that had previously not been considered elite. And the question was, were they seen as not elite because they were not excellent or because they were not privileged? The traditional effort to insist that the traditional canon had emerged through some kind of more or less objective, rigorous, historical sifting process was essentially an argument about meritocracy. That was the Arnoldian hope, the faith that excellence was intrinsic and self-evident and thus undeniable, that the best that was thought and said could be easily identified. The elite privileged position was that canonical artists or cultural works had been included solely on the basis of merit, and that QED, any work that had been excluded, had therefore been excluded on the basis of lack of merit, not on the basis of political or ethical bias. In other words, the question about the canon is a question about quotas. Should we force into the space of privilege people other than the white straight, or sometimes pretending to be straight in the case of many authors, men who dominate that space? Should we push out the old imperialist, centralizing, normalizing perspective to make room for marginal perspectives? Can we make the margin the center without replicating the whole process all over again? Should we introduce quotas and bring voices in the case of novels, which is the case I know best, from different perspectives and backgrounds? No to quotas, shouted the elite. They will destroy meritocracy. Yes to quotas, shouted the subaltern. They will enable meritocracy. Well, personally, I think the same thing about the canon that I think about quotas in government or on corporate boards. The fantasy is pretending that the argument is about quotas or no quotas. We already have quotas. The quotas were for white straight men who were not there solely on the basis of merit, but were there partly on the basis of privilege. So the question is not quotas or no quotas. The question is which quotas. Anyone who pretends that all of the straight white Anglo-European men in positions of global power today are there solely on the basis of merit are lying or deluded. And the same was true of the canon. Yes, there was the occasional George Eliot, the Angela Merkel of English letters. Jane Austen can be Christine Lagarde. But a lot of space was being taken up by great, minor, by, sorry, by great many minor works and writers whose artistic or intellectual merit was certainly open to question. Should we study Nahum Tate's writings of Shakespeare, rewritings of Shakespeare rather than Afroben or Fanny Burney? That's a much more difficult uh, value judgment to make. When I moved to the UK in 1999, I was bemused to discover the number of elite degree programs in Anglophone literature that remained organized around the presumption that white male middle class literature was normative and that it was fine to study works by other people, sure, but one should do so as a sideline, as an elective, that it was possible to emerge with a BA or indeed an MA or even a PhD in literature and English in this country and never have read a novel by a woman or by an American. The idea that L.P. Hartley or Kingsley Amos is self-evidently a more important writer than Scott Fitzgerald or William Faulkner is a ludicrous anywhere in the world except on this sceptered isle, and yet it persists. When I tried to teach a class in contemporary American literature in my first year, I had a syllabus that was half by women, half by men, and one of my older male colleagues went absolutely apoplectic, <laughs> demanding, where is Roth? Where is DeLillo? This is totally true story. I said... I think they're flourishing. I think they're doing just fine without any assistance from me. 
Whereas here are some really interesting, terrific writers, Nella Larson, Jamaica Kincaid, Gail Jones, Catherine M. Porter, even Willa Cather, Edith Wharton, that students never encounter. He said, of course you can teach those books, but you should do so in a course on women's literature. I said to a professor of American studies, do the words Jim Crow not mean anything to you at all? Separate is not equal. And that is why I absolutely believe in expanding the canon. But that is not the same thing as throwing out the canon. I also believe that Roth and DeLillo and Fitzgerald and Hemingway are wonderful writers. Their attitudes to women, to black people, to gay people, to Jews are not wonderful. I don't admire them and I don't emulate them. But I do think we've gotten ourselves into a tangle, judging literature solely on the basis of identity politics, replacing one privilege on the basis of identity category with another. Judging literature on the basis of whether its attitudes mirror or endorse our own seems to me a profoundly narcissistic and solipsistic way to approach art, which to me is important and valuable precisely insofar as it expands my horizons. I don't read literature to confirm what I already thought. I read it to learn, to be dazzled and amazed by this wonderful thing we've invented called language, which I just love. Words just blow my mind. They're such amazing things, and we take them very much for granted. I read to be awed by new ideas, to learn about history, about the past, which is indeed another country full of very different people. I don't think it's a very interesting judgment to observe that they sometimes don't share my values. And I think it's a problematic judgment to say that they are bad if they don't share my values. And that takes me back to the question of excellence and privilege, the question of the elite. But is it any good, the custodians of the canon like to ask? And that word good like elite, conflates two different value systems, the aesthetic and the moral. We may not think that a given novel's moral system is entirely flawless, but that doesn't mean that it is an immoral or, or amoral book, or that it doesn't have a great deal to teach us about moral or ethical questions, quite apart from what it may teach us about aesthetics. The Great Gatsby, for example, has a great deal to show about the moral system of America, and it does so partly by design and partly by accident and that's okay. It also teaches us a hell of a lot about language and aesthetics along the way. This, it seems to me, is where dumbing down enters the equation. Certainly too often, we are, in my experience and my opinion, we are not challenging students and ourselves to read hard enough books. I've always resisted joining book clubs because book clubs are what I do for a living, but a couple of writers who are friends of mine suggested that we might get together and talk about Henry James's The Ambassadors, which was his favorite of his own novels, but which both of them have struggled with and which I love. And they wanted me to kind of show them why I love it. And one of them just sent me a message the other day saying that he was glad he had persevered because reading James seemed to entail rewiring his brain. And I said, that's it. That's exactly it. And isn't it great? James forces you to rewire your brain. Certainly, some do not relish that challenge, but many, many people rise to it and love the experience of being pushed by a genius to move your brain in unaccustomed directions. James is like the world's toughest personal trainer for your brain, and if you relish a good workout, he's your man. If you want to be intellectually lazy, then probably not. And that's the word I prefer to dumbing down, because that phrase reinforces intellectual hierarchies and snobberies. I prefer to talk about books that make me work and books that make it easy on me. But difficulty, too, is not a universal value. I don't prefer difficult friendships, but I do prefer difficult books, partly because of the pleasure of mastery and expertise. Some people prefer difficult cars because they want to master them as a measure of excellence. Some people prefer easy cars because they just want to get from point A to point B. There is room for both as long as we don't confuse the two. 
The excellent and difficult is the concept of the elite that we should not be finding problematic. We don't object to the idea of elite athletes. We don't see them as hogging some kind of privilege. And athletic excellence is pretty clear. They win the contest. That makes it easier to measure, to be sure. The problem with elite education, especially in this country, is that historically, it is analogous to a situation in which the so-called elite athletes are not actually the best, but keep getting onto the Olympic team anyway because they're friends with the coach or their father buys them a place. And that is why excellence and privilege have been elided, and that is what we need to untangle, or consciously uncouple, as Gwyneth might say. I had to make a little dumbing down joke there. Where dumbing down comes into it, it seems to me, is in the idea that we must create equality by leveling the playing field, by finding the lowest common denominator and emphasizing inclusiveness over excellence. Inclusiveness is a good thing, I think, but so is excellence. And inclusiveness in elite sports does not mean excluding David Beckham because he's white and straight. I would never support an educational program that advocated not teaching Shakespeare or James or Faulkner. But we can also identify and locate wonderful, excellent, challenging books that have only been recently included on the conversation by, in the conversation by dint of the identity categories of their author. And we will never have true excellence, let alone true inclusiveness, if we keep judging books on that basis. The other area of dumbing down, that, then, that needs to be challenged is not in the text that we ask questions of, but in the questions that we ask of them. We need to ask more questions about books than whether they tell us consoling stories about our intrinsic significance. We need to ask more difficult questions of ourselves as well as of our books and not think that if we have cleverly worked out that Dickens is a bit misogynistic, that this constitutes some great critical insight. It may be a starting point, but as a conclusion, it seems to me pretty uninteresting, not least because it's something of a given. But can we afford to dispense with Dickens because he doesn't endorse every one of our values? Of course not. The great contemporary woman writer Marilyn Robinson once wrote that, quote, a question is more spacious than a statement, far better suited to expressing wonder. The most challenging books make us question in order to express wonder. They are enlightening in the best sense, contesting our facile, recycled understanding of ourselves and of our world. Great art resists received wisdom, and our ideas of excellence need to do the same, to stop making flat statements and to start asking tougher questions. Speaker is John T. Claypole. You have seen from the blurb that was circulated, the publicity material, uh, John T. is no less than director, <coughs> director of arts at the BBC, and he works across television, uh, radio, online, all the very different media. And uh, as he sees it, I don't know whether you gave us this line about yourself, John T., but you, your aim is to ensure that the BBC succeeds in its mission of arts for everyone. Uh, he's a, both as a director and executive producer, he's made over 100 television documentaries for BBC TV, including series like Seven Ages of Britain, History of Art in Three Colours, A Very British uh, Renaissance, and Andrew Marr's Great Scots. So, uh, and it is also under John T, on his watch, however you want to put it, John, um, that uh, uh, it has been known, the BBC has let it be known, or that um, it is commissioning a new series of civilization um, to uh, a hard act to follow, Kenneth <coughs> um, totemic 
television series of the late, mid, late, late 1960s, mid-60s to late 60s, History of Art of Civilization, uh, which uh, has uh, really gone down, which is uh, well, in, the, in, not in the annals of public service broadcasting, um, but really in the pantheon, in our cultural and artistic <coughs> pantheon, um, having been exported to just about every country in the world, as far as I'm aware. But the BBC sees fit to make a new series of civilization. I'm sure John T. will tell us why that was thought needed. And um, John T. would very much like you to share some thoughts about that, but your other thoughts about Lord Reed's mission to educate and inform that high-minded uh, mission set out for the BBC in the 1930s, 40s, and uh, whether you think that the BBC is living up to that Reekin mission, or whether it too has fallen victim to popularisation, dumbing down, and political correctness. John T, over you. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to be very middle brow, I'm afraid, but I do work for the BBC. And interestingly, I, th- I think the word middle brow was partly coined to describe the BBC's output in the um, 1920s. But sort of broadly, um, I, I, I want to say three things. And, and the sort of first is about um, how nothing has changed. And the second is about how everything has changed. And then the third is about why I think the, the, um, the latter is a good thing. And I will talk about civilization a bit, but probably not as much as our dear chair wants me to talk about, because <laughs> uh, we are doing announcements about this in, in about six weeks. Um, in terms of how nothing has changed, um, uh, I'm, I'm aware I'm very much here to represent the BBC. And I think the BBC is uh, a remarkable um, organisation in, in, in the sense that it's been very consistent uh, since the 1920s in its remit to um, inform, educate and entertain. Uh, and the great thing about those three watchwords is, they are obvi- you know, is that they um, offer up a real breadth for kind of looking at culture um, in different ways. Our services reach 96% of the population a week, um, which is sort of extraordinary. And through them, through the different services and the different tones they have, um, we're able to deal with high culture, popular culture, the Western canon, global canons. Um, If I'm frank, at the moment, my greatest priority is not about sustaining bastions of high culture, uh, which I think uh, the BBC is very well served with and its inherent services like Radio 3 and BBC 4, um, a far bigger priority for me is uh, how we broaden ideas uh, of culture and what culture is and how we make the arts more accessible. I don't know how many of you read the Warwick Commission report last week, which uh, offered up some startling statistics and alarming statistics about participation <clears throat> and, uh, in the arts. Um, and it cannot be right that the most culturally active uh, portion of our population is the wealthiest, better educated, least diverse 8%, but that is the case. Uh, and I think the BBC has a moral imperative um, to work to, to broaden that um, uh, through a range of approaches, and that can range <coughs> from um, offering up um, works that one would consider to be high culture, as they are, uh, and through to uh, interpreting them and making them accessible for, for different audiences. Uh, I, I always think it's important with the BBC not to get in, in, a, in a sort of is it about high culture or horrible phrase dumbing down, which I won't sign up to, but um, it's, it, 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 you know, it's not an either or, there's an and and, there's different ways of doing things and different ways of reaching different audiences. 
Um, just to give an example, this week we launched a new series on Sunday evenings uh, called The Big Painting Challenge on BBC One. Four million people watched it, and it's very simply to, to celebrate amateur art in this country while giving insights into to how painting works. Um, so a very popular show. Um, at the same time, on BBC Two, we've launched a new series with Amanda Vickery on the suffragettes, which started off with... Um, uh, stories of Mary Wollstonecraft and uh, Hannah Moore. We have Wolf Hall going on, which I think is a superb drama. Um, on BBC Four, we've had uh, Nandini Das do a very good programme on uh, Cabinets of Curiosities. We've had a profile of Kazuo Ishiguro. Uh, we've had Rob McFarlane make a wonderful film on Nan Shepherd's Living Mountain in the Cairngorms. We had a Picasso film on two nights ago. Uh, on Sunday, we're doing our first Arts Question Time, which we recorded a few nights ago, which uh, should be quite interesting. Um, and we have a profile on Alexander McCall-Smith. And that's alongside the ways we look at culture and popular music through Radio 1 um, and Radio 2. So I, I, mean, I hope that gives a sense of the sort of breadth of the BBC's mission um, there. Um, so, in, you know, in some ways, I don't think the BBC has really changed. I've, I, I think Reef's mission is, is one that is very much... Um, um, bought into by, by people at the BBC and by our, our audience, and I think it's alive and well. Uh, and on that note, I think that um, despite the pressures of austerity, I think we're actually living through a golden age of art and culture more generally. I think our theatre, dance, music, um, literature is uh, superb at the moment, and uh, you know, not a week goes by in which I'm not going to an exhibition or seeing a play of some sort, which feels to me genuinely remarkable and groundbreaking. Um, all that said, I think everything has changed over the last 20, 30 years. Um, the the, the uh, high culture in the Western canon have never got, gone away, but their dominance clearly have, and other canons and other cultures have emerged. Um, this was led in the 1960s, as Morris was talking about, with uh, structuralism and post-structuralism and post-colonialism and feminism. But I think more than any isms, which I think very rarely break through to... Um, to the majority of the population. The most transformative thing has been the internet. Um, I've, and I think for many people in this room, uh, myself included, um, we sort of grew up in, in a world in which things were classified uh, and the way that arts and culture were talked about and experienced uh, was very much in, in a system of categories, um, very much in a system, uh, so high culture, middle or low culture, uh, and a system of forms. We've talked very specifically about theatres and literature and, and their institutions that existed to serve those forms and within those forms of, of genres as well. And quite simply, the internet has very, uh, has very quickly started to, to uh, collapse these. It's created just a very, very sort of busy marketplace in which everything from porn and poetry are flung together. Uh, and the internet has been purely about convergence, about convergence of categories and forms and genres. It's been a bit about globalisation. It is inconceivable that 20 years ago a South Korean pop song uh, like Gangan Style could have had the impact here that it, um, that it did. And it's very much about experiences as well rather than artworks or art forms, which is something implicit to the internet as a form of distribution, that you do not have an object or something to, uh, to, um, to sort of look at or engage with. You are responding to a screen and it's about the experiences it evokes in you. A very interesting thing is that Radio 1 did a survey uh, last year about what genres of music young people were listening to, and they were doing it to look at if, if they had the right breadth of programming on Radio 1. Uh, and, and certainly for my generation, where music was a very tribal thing, you know, were you an indie kid or into hip-hop, 
what was very interesting to discover is that young people don't think in terms of genres of music at all now. It's completely gone. They think purely in terms of the emotions and the experiences that music um, offers them. So music, you know, that you want to listen to if you're feeling a bit sad and reflective. Music you want to listen to if you're going to go out and party. And Radio 1, if you listen to it now, has restructured the way it curates its programming on that theme. It's a very interesting um, development. And also, I don't think it's unique to young people either. I think it's something that all of us are experiencing um, to differing degrees. So I I think in this post-internet age, it is increasingly hard to talk about high culture or middle culture or popular culture or canons at all. Um, And I make no apologies in that I think this is um, an exciting world to be in. I, I studied the Western canon. I studied English literature at Oxford. I studied that Western canon. Uh, And in the years since leaving, I've realised how inadequate um, that was. (laughs) I no longer recognise the canon I was taught as a canon. The most interesting educational journey I've been on is the one that I started since I I left university. And I realised that that canon implicitly made me blink it. It made me feel there was a superiority by the very definition of the word canon of what I was studying over other works um, of literature. Uh, so, in fact, I, I think those notions of high culture and Western canons actually had an anti-intellectualism about them uh, in that they had the effect of narrowing, not broadening my horizons, and it took me a long time to overcome the prejudices I built up at, at university. I want to know more about non-Western, different types of, um, of arts. Uh, so, to come to civilization, um, we have announced and we are embarking on making um, a new series inspired by civilization. I, it's very important to say inspired and not a remake uh, because um, I don't think you can do a remake of civilization, partly because it's, it is a superb series, it is still the greatest art series ever made, but also I think to embark on a single narrative, a single voiced account of Western civilization at the moment. Um, is not the right thing um, the right thing to do. Uh, Kenneth Clark offered up his own opinion, uh, and that was it, and it was wonderful for the time. Uh, but I think um, at the moment it's far more interesting to think about how we can um, uh, hear from a plurality of voices uh, and also how we can look at civilization through a global perspective. And having made this decision is a very intellectually liberating one because once you start to approach a program on the... Uh, um, Renaissance, not looking on, um, at, on its own and getting stuck into the traditional and rather boring narratives of the invention of perspective and the, um, and the rise of banking in the Medici state, but actually looking at, at the Italian um, Renaissance in contrast to the golden ages of art concurrently happening in Iran and India, suddenly you're in new territory, uh, territory which, which feels much more exciting. <coughs> I'm about to finish. Um, I also think at the moment um, that... You know, in, in, in a time of increasing um, uh, ideological divide in the world, to, to be propping up notions of, of the sort of Western canon is frankly very dangerous, and that actually the BBC has a responsibility to be promoting understanding of other cultures uh, and other canons too. So when I hear talk of a uh, fight back for high art and the Western canon, I worry. I worry about the, the political subtext of such a statement. I think there's an isolationist and elitist spirit behind it. Um, and, I, and, I, and I sort of wonder why canons should even be fighting for supremacy rather than reaping the benefits of cohabitation. 
Uh, fortunately, there is no way back. There is no way back to the male, pale, stale hegemony of the 1950s. High culture in the Western canon haven't gone away. They're alive and kicking. They've just had to learn pl- to play nicely with other canons. Uh, and our lives are infinitely richer for this. So to come back to something in the brief about whether uh, Matthew Arnold, T.S. Eliot and F.R. Levers can sleep uh, soundly in their graves, frankly, I don't give a stuff if they do or not. <laughs> Well, thank you for that feisty <laughs> contribution, John T. It was great. Thank you very much indeed. We need to crack on because I want to leave time, a decent amount of time for questions um, uh, at the end. We have two more speakers to go. So I'm now going to ask Maya Jaggi, uh, who is uh, one of the most uh, esteemed and widely read, and I can say that without uh, fear of contradiction, of cultural journalists and uh, critics, of judges of literary awards, of interviews. Uh, of and renowned also, amongst other things, uh, for her interviews with um, <coughs> outstanding writers, including many Nobel Prize, um, Nobel Prize winning uh, writers, including Gunter Grass, Mario Vargas Llosa, Jose Saramago, Derek Walcott, V.S. Naipaul, Orhan Pamuk, and many, and many, many more. And she finds a pretty way of teasing out of her interviewees. Um, uh, illuminating um, and extremely candid um, insights into themselves as well as their work, uh, which makes her really compulsively readable. So we're delighted, Maya, that um, you joined us today. Would you like to get your teeth into this uh, provocative, somewhat binary, somewhat, somewhat simplistic, but it was meant to be? Uh, that is uh, to precisely to get a uh, uh, that to provide that crunchiness which provides for good debates, which enables good debates. And Maya, I know that you will not balk at the task. Please. <laughs> Thank you very much, Morris. Um, I hope you can hear me. Um, given the provocations that you offered, um, in the, very interestingly, in the, at the beginning, I wanted to start with a few lines from an epic poem. I said, Omeros. And O was the conch shell's invocation. Mare was both mother and sea in our Antillian patois. Os a grey bone, and the white surf as it crashes and spreads its sibilant collar on a lace shore. Derek Wolcott's Omeros, as many of you will recognize, um, a Homer-inspired epic of the fisher folk of his Caribbean island, is a useful reminder that there are writers born outside the Western world, including Walcott, Wallace, Schoenker, and Ben Okri, to name but three, who are more versed in the Greek classics than many born within it. The difficult texts that Morris referred to, the rich canvases and the musical scores of our Western inheritance, are recognized the world over, from Shakespeare and Ibsen, who are the most globally produced playwrights, to Western classical music. And in fact, right after this discussion, I'm looking forward to going to Lebanon to listen to a concert performance of Bellini's Norma in the hills of Beirut. Classical music is performed, appreciated, and composed on every continent. (coughs) So high culture and the Western canon can rather conflated at times um, in the title of this talk and in some of all of our discussion, I'm sure. 
are not the same thing. To recognize art outside a Western tradition is not inherently to dumb down, but may in fact be vital to our cultural survival. T.S. Eliot, a Sanskrit scholar who also acknowledged the influence of Indian literature and translation on his own poetry, noted that we have not given enough attention to the ecology of cultures. A national culture is the better for being in contact with outside cultures. And for George Steiner, who quarreled with Levis's resolute provincialism, his refusal to concern himself on any but a perfunctory scale with foreign literature, is it not the duty of a critic to avail himself in some imperfect measure, at least, of another language, if only to experience the defining contours of his own? So briefly to Kenneth Clark's civilization, it was, um, as John T. has said, a self-professed personal view whose blind spots have been much remarked upon. But for me, the, the problem was not just what it left out, but its confidence in the judgments that it was making, um, comparative judgments about whether a Greek statue or an African mask or a Viking longboat were of a higher civilization. What is civilization, Clark asked. And his answer, I can recognize it when I see it, seems to me a little inadequate. <laughs> How then did he leave out Spain? If he had considered that many of the Greek classics on which his idea of Western civilization was based had been preserved in Arabic translations and reached Renaissance Europe via the scholarship of Islamic and Jewish Spain, our view of Western civilization (coughs) might have been enriched. For me, the terms of this debate call to mind... Excuse me, something that Sarah was talking about, not not just Arnold, Elliot, and Levis, but the culture wars in America in the 1980s and 90s when I started my career, when arguments about canon formation were at their height. Harold Bloom characterized all those who wanted to enlarge the Western canon, opening it up to other voices, as cheerleaders for a school of resentment. Pragmatically, he wrote, the expansion of the canon has meant the destruction of the canon, since what is being taught includes by no means the best writers who happen to be women, African, Hispanic, or Asian, but rather the writers who offer little but the resentment they have developed as a part of their sense of identity. Yet, and again, this is, I think, um, reinforcing something said earlier, but how self-evident are these judgments about value? For Bloom, the school of resentment was based on purely aesthetic judgments, was politicizing a canon based on purely aesthetic judgments. And yet, as I know, the inclusion of writers, which he does include, such as Chinua Chebe, was contested at every stage, including at the stage of publishing, when as James Curry, who was um, an early a publisher who worked with Achebe in the early days, told me, many believed at that time that it was dubious that an African could reach the standards of an English publisher. Um, So I tend to agree with Henry Louis Gates um, during that period of the culture wars in his amazement at how people can maintain a straight face while they protest the eruption of politics into something that has always been political from the beginning. My own view of that period, uh, which was period of archival excavation and encyclopedias and copious anthologies. Um, It was also a period of the women's presses, um, the women's press, Virago, Pandora, and so on, was that 
what was being published was definitely of varying quality. But it's only when it's out there, um, and particularly I'd add something that literature and translation, in good translation, is out there, that we can begin to make these kind of critical judgments about what should be taught, um, in, if that's what the canon is, what should be valued. <coughs> and rather like uh, popular culture and the, and the inception of cultural studies in the 60s uh, here, which has been the, the source of much ridicule, I asked, um, once asked Stuart Hall uh, about this, who, as you know, was um, one of the creators of cultural studies, said, um, there's a, he told me there's a ferocious amount of crap written in any discipline, <laughs> but at least the way the cu- that cultures shape institutions has come now to be seen as fact. What, who would argue now with the serious um, study of film, for example, as, as an art form, which was contested from its, at, in the beginning? Um, and so... What I'd say is that what, what really has changed since 1969 when Kenneth Clark's Civilization was screened, in um, the art form which is my, my main discipline in literature, not, at that period not a single African, Arab or Chinese writer had won the Nobel in literature in its 80-year history. <coughs> Asia had a slightly better sh- showing with Tagore and Kawabata, the Caribbean in, in, in St. John Perswell, Latin America did better still. But it showed its one indicator for a prize that had pretensions to being global of the relative disregard for literatures and art forms beyond the Euro-American. So far from wanting to dumb down, my plea would be not for less expertise but for more, for more literature in translation and more and sterner criticism of it. Only then can we begin to make the judgments about what merits joining the canon. Where I have some sympathy um, with Kenneth Clark, a great deal in fact, is in his zeal to popularise the arts. Eliot thought, and let's see what what we think of this now, that that in our headlong rush to educate everybody, we are lowering our standards. While for Bloom, how can Paradise Lost or Faust part two, ever lend themselves to universal access. (coughs) The strongest poetry is cognitively and imaginatively too difficult to be read deeply by more than a relative few of any social class, race, gender, or ethnic origin. Am I alone in querying that? On a very personal note, my mother arrived in London in the 1950s with a first in English from (coughs) Delhi University. She taught for decades in a West London secondary modern, later a comprehensive school, imparting what I know to be a lifelong love of Shakespeare and Jane Austen to pupils who are not expected to be a part of that few. Thankfully, those works are still being taught, alongside others, including Achebe and Anita Desai and many others. We can't go back, and who of us would wish to? Thank you very, very much for a very rich set of remarks. Um, and I will now move to our last speaker, Frederick Raphael, who we've known, I'm sure if not personally, maybe personally to some of you, but through his uh, 25 novels, 
uh, and volumes and short stories, <coughs> his screenplays, films like Darling, The Glittering Prizes, who would forget that TV series, um, set um, in The uh, Glittering Prizes of Oxford, of course, in the, the 19... Um, it was it Cambridge? Was it Cambridge? Was it Cambridge? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was I'm an LSE man myself, so I wasn't uh, wishful thinking. Um, and, and Stanley Kubrick's uh, Eyes Wide Shut, amongst uh, many, many other um, things. So, um, Frederick is also a well known uh, classicist and uh, manages to see the relevance of the classics, imports the classics into a lot of his writing, his literary criticism. Um, not, uh, not in a spirit of, uh, of showing off, but it really born of a real love of the classics, um, which uh, certainly has infused me a lot for decades, and are delighted to come to join us. So, Frederick, please, without further ado, please do um, say what you would like to say on these vexed As you can questions. tell, I'm here in the impersonation of ancient history. Um, <laughs> I, the last time I had came to London University this part of... Uh, of London, quite a long time ago, <clears throat> for a lecture by John Wisdom, who was a professor of philosophy at Cambridge when I was there. And I walked into the hall, and uh, I think it was in Gordon Square, and all one could see of Wisdom was the top of his head, which was resting on a lectern. <laughs> and the room slowly filled up, and then the professorial person who uh, was in charge announced that we were very lucky to have Professor Wisdom, uh, who is going to talk to us tonight. As you know, he's the Professor of Philosophy, <coughs> um, the subject of God. I'm sorry, of theology. <laughs> theology. So very slowly, Wisdom's head came up like this. <laughs> and he looked at the audience with a sort of terrified horror and said God <laughs> and I feel something of the same kind about the notion of culture one doesn't have to be Hermann Goering if it was Hermann Goering who reached for his revolver nor of course should we reach for our revolvers and wisdom actually once came home to Wittgenstein or came to Wittgenstein's rooms in, in uh, I presume in Trotsky and said he had a terrible afternoon because he had seen X, I think it was probably Casimir Louis, another Cambridge <coughs> philosopher, and they had had a very, very unproductive uh, discussion. And Wittgenstein said, I always assume he spoke in some kind of Middle European accent, though I never actually encountered him, perhaps you made the mistake of contradicting something he said. <laughs> so I'm not disposed to contradict any of these um, <laughs> eminent persons, but I am disposed to some extent to wonder what it's got to do with me. And here there's a story about Wittgenstein, about uh, Nabokov. In fact, there are a couple of stories. One, when Nabokov was um, put up as professor of literature at, I think it was Cornell, a man called Roman Jakobson, who was a, a semiotician, I think, um, opposed his... Uh, being given the job of professor. And somebody said, but Mr. Nabokov is a, a, a famous writer, to which Jakobson said, we might as well elect an elephant as the professor of zoology. <laughs> what I'm conscious of sitting here is that I have no proper part um, in this conversation, 
And in those things which one sometimes gets asked to fill in in uh, reference books, it always says career, and then there's a great deal of space. But I, ha I have no career. Writers don't have careers. They don't even have much responsibility, except perhaps to the language. Now, Nobel Prizes are very wonderful, and doubtless we, in our secret selves, uh, lie awake thinking, what happened to that call from Stockholm? But I picked up a volume by Alice Munro, uh, who recently received the uh, Nobel Prize for Literature, because I thought I should improve myself. I'm not kidding. So I read in the first or second page of the short story which I was reading the following sentence. He considered going to England, semicolon, but he died instead. <laughs> now, I would have omitted the word instead because in truth, he did not die instead. He was going to come to England, but he died. What's this got to do with all of this very fine talk which we've been hearing from academic and uh, institutional persons? Not a lot. But it has to me. Because it seems to me that the job of the artist... Well, there's another story there. A friend of mine was telling me the other day, a Hollywood producer, that he went to a, um, a meeting with Marlon Brando, whose movie he had just produced, at which Barbara Streisand and various other people were meeting, doubtless for a very good reason to raise money for a good cause. And Barbara being the most important and famous and self-important as well, very nice but very self-important, um, was called upon to speak first. And Barbara said, speaking as an artist, and Brando said, let's get out of here. <laughs> uh, one must be very careful of this word, art. I'm, I'm pretty careful about fighting back and all that stuff, but I'd sooner be careful about art. Um, and one of the things which... <laughs> A word, Greek word which is constantly translated as art <coughs> is the Greek word techni. But techni in Greek terms doesn't mean art in any fancy or capitalised way. It just means competence or ability. When Phidias was working on the Parthenon at, uh, at Athens, he was paid the same amount as all the other people who toted bits of marble and did the other stuff they do because the artist in those days was not a rassapar. In fact, the artist, as you know from the mythology of Hephaestus, was actually often a lame person who couldn't fight or run after beasts, and so he was left at home to decorate the cave, so to speak. Um, Nabokov was once in some occasion of this order also, and somebody said to him, what do you feel about the future of the novel, Mr. Nabokov? To which he replied, I am not concerned about the future of the novel, I am concerned about the future of my novel. <laughs> and on the whole, this form of conceited modesty is a very useful one for, God help us, artists. Um, it seems to me quite important to be interested in what has been said here, and when one goes home, one pays no attention to it, whatever. That is also very important. It seems to me that being a good writer has not got to do with uh, adopting certain... Uh, aesthetic or even moral postures. In fact, I'm very dubious about those, aren't you? No. The important thing, as Oscar Wilde said pretty well, books are either well-written or they're badly written. Uh, we can talk about that and, and, and useful things to be said. 
But if we now consider what it's like, for instance, to incorporate creative writing into a university, uh, my honest view of that is it's very understandable, just don't do it. It's fine. If you really think that's what you should, uh, you're able to teach, I don't think you can. And what are the great models that have come out of, of creative writing classes? Uh, not the least of them is Ian McEwan. Now, I have absolutely nothing personal against Ian McEwan, except perhaps a measure of envy that we could always read in. Um, the trouble is, the work ain't very good. And it's all got up. It's all thought up. Which takes us to the next stage of what's wrong with the arts, whether in this country or, I suspect, any other. And that is, of course, that it passes through a number of rather narrow gates of one kind or another. I went to a, last time I went to a thing at university was at Southampton where my friend um, Ray Monk is the professor of philosophy. Um, and one of the speakers was a man from Penguin Books, and I'm beginning to think similarity is working. His name was Stuart Prophet, beautifully, beautifully, appropriately named. I mean, a, a Johnsonian name, Stuart Prophet. Um, a man of the highest qualities. Um, and when he came to give his lecture on biography, what he showed us was a graph projected on the wall of how well biography is doing these days. Well, at that point, I didn't really care what else he had to say because the notion that we can evaluate books by whether or not they're selling seems to me, of my generation, absurd. But it's not absurd because, of course, every single time you go to see a publisher, I don't do a lot of it, but I do a bit of it, the key figure is the sales manager. Never mind all the aesthetic concerns which have been raised elsewhere. There is no aesthetic concern in most publishing. The question is, can we unload lots of books? In truth, it seems to me that the importance of the writer is isolation, not incorporation. Um, it's not wondering whether every word you put down would be approved of by A, B, or C. I don't really care about that. What matters is the feeling that you have if you are somebody who, in my view, is honouring the Western tradition. You, so to speak, run your hand over the surface of your prose, and if you feel there might be a splinter, there is one. So you better sand and polish that bit. It seems to me that the arts in general is a dubious prospect, a dubious project. Uh, on, on the whole, all kinds of subsidised arts seem not to be as good as they should be. I don't mean they never are. Um, just as journalism has now taken over in every possible way as the adjudicator in society. And you might say that was a good thing. Better to have the literary editor of the Financial Times decide whether a book is worth reviewing than to have Frank Leavis. I don't know. I don't know Frank Leavis either, because I read classics. And now I come back to something else, which is to do with the, with the canon. And that is the quality of translation. Now, translation is an incredibly difficult topic, and my old friend Guy Lee, who translated very well from, from, from Latin in particular at Cambridge, um, Guy said the difficulty is, of course, we don't really know what they meant. Now, that doesn't mean we don't know what Mensa means. It just simply means one should be very, very careful about presuming to understand texts. Um, and it seems to me that Neglecting the classics, for instance, which in many ways is a frightful bore. Nobody questions that. But it tells you a great deal about what accuracy is. And philology is part of scholarship. Um, 
And one of the things that worries me about a lot of modern work, in particular, let me personal, it's more fun. Um, Daniel Mendelssohn translated Gavafi, um, a big fat volume, and he's a very important person. And uh, in journalism, literary journalism, as well as everything else, you're supposed to be very careful of offending important people. The great advantage of having written a movie or two and done vulgar things of that order is that I am not excessively intimidated by not having the prospect of earning 200 pounds by writing about people who may or may not damage me in that particular field. So I read Daniel uh, Mendelssohn's book, Translation of Goafi, with great care, and I compared it, even though the text which I received did not have the Greek, I compared it with the Greek. My Greek ain't that good, but it's good enough to notice that, for instance, the word octo, which is eight, is not the same as the word eftar, which is seven. Now, does it matter when uh, Daniel Mendelssohn translates eight as seven? No. I mean, it's not actionable. It's not even indictable. <coughs> but it's slightly alarming. Now, over and over again, he improves the translation, and he also does something else, which I think is quite wrong in translation. He changes the order of the presentation of the phrases. Now, what on earth could I be worrying about that for when we have so much else to worry about? The answer is, it's a form of treason to literature, to this great culture we talk about, which is more talked about than honoured, it seems to me, but never mind that. No, one should translate accurately. One can be fanciful, and I've done some of that, but on the whole, it does matter what it all comes from. I, I, I don't know about fighting back. I don't even know about fighting all that much. It seems to me the best fight back <coughs> is good work. Uh, I don't really think that one should adopt a pugnacious posture, uh, except for fun. Uh, in, 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 on this occasion, one could do it if one wishes to do so. But, but in general, just do good work and bide your time is the best arrangement. Um, the grander the words, the more dubious their application to what people actually do. Um, I remember being at a festival. I don't do a lot of this stuff. But I was at a festival with an uh, Israeli writer called uh, David Grossman, a rather good writer whose son was killed in Lebanon, I think. Um, and this is some years ago. And somebody in the audience, quite understandably, said, um, what is the real difference between you uh, and David Grossman? David Grossman uh, is an Israeli Jew. There he lives there, and he, you know, he lives in that community. And you are, if I may say so, um, a sort of peregrinating... Um, bottled figure and semi-American, uh, a bit British, and I don't know what not else. What's the difference between you? And I say, well, I think the big difference is that David Grossman uses a lot of commas and I use a lot of full stops. Um, a bit slick, a bit flip, but true. In other words, it seems to me, in the end, what, what, what renders work good is that one takes great care of his presentation. It doesn't mean the comma is bad or the full stop is good. Um, but I'm very wary of grand categories of virtue in any of uh, the artistic canons. I'm also very wary of the notion that popularization is a good thing. Um, so is unpopularization. That's all I would say about that. Uh, there is a lot to be said for making one's own way. And I often think of Philoctetes on the island of Lemnos. Remember that Odysseus came um, and said to him that although he had a stinking foot because he had been stung, I think, by a snake, um, Philoctetes had a bow uh, which never missed. And the Greeks were in some trouble. And uh, 
didn't quite know what to do with the Trojans, and they thought that if they got uh, Philoctetes, all he did stink to come off the island and down to Troy, they might finish this war rather more quickly. Um, and Odysseus, being very good at all this, uh, seems to have persuaded Philoctetes to go. But I'll tell you, I think it would have been better if they had invented penicillin, cured Philoctetes' problem, and left him there on Lemnos. I think writers should live more on Lemnos than in some grand, central, easily influenced position. And I think that the twin things, or the triple things, if you like, of journalism, great institutions, and the universities make their contribution. They also induce lameness. Ladies and gentlemen, you know you're at a high culture event when one of the speakers assumes you'll know who Philoctetes was, where Lemnos is, um, and in fact you've written quite a bit about Philoctetes and Lemnos, if I'm not mistaken, in several publications recently. But thank you very much, Frederick, for, uh, for your comments. Uh, I ought to give two people really the right, right of reply, but one, Stuart Prophet, who's normally here at our humanities-based events and who works literally around the corner. I don't think he's, he's here. Um, Sarah, he's a friend here, I think. Uh, is that right? There's nothing wrong with Stuart Prophet, it's just that he's, he's very well named. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and if we had more time, I would also, also ask uh, Sarah to put um, the case that needs to be made, surely, for the ability to teach creative writing successfully as, uh, well, first Malcolm Bradbury, um, and of course her own department, Ian McEwen, and um, uh, Rose Tremaine. Uh, Guru, we can fit clearly there is it can be done uh, and University, I, of, East Anglia, I, University I, of East Anglia would seem to be the proof can I just, I'll, just, I'll just address that, that issue very very quickly which is that it's fine to say that it can't be done but uh, as Frederick knows you know, and as Maya mentioned a uh, hundred years ago people said it can't and shouldn't film can't and shouldn't be taught and then a hundred years before that, two hundred years before that they said that the novel can and shouldn't be taught um, and they say you know Scott Fitzgerald wrote to his daughter when she was entering Vassar um, in 1940. She said she was going to take the modern English prose novel from uh, from 1700, I think, or something like that. And he wrote her and said, I work too hard to pay your tuition. Um, anybody who can't read the modern English novel on their own is subnormal and you know it. Um, so uh, my point is simply that, the, and as I said at the beginning, that these value judgments do indeed evolve and change. Thank you very much. Now we've got a little bit of time for questions. Um, and um, I will ask you, I know that this is not the kind of topic that lends itself to uh, particularly short and snappy and concise questions, but I'll do your, please do your best. No speeches. Short and sweet, please. And uh, we'll see if we can get through perhaps three questions anyway. The lady there has been very tenacious, and I think I must Hello. reward her. Um, and then the gentleman uh, with the blue shirt. Yes, but please, yeah. you like um, to pick. Well, the last time I saw Mr. Raphael was at 20th Century Fox after he'd just written Darling. We met when Irving Kirshner, who's my godfather, was uh, also launching Flim Flam Man. That was the last time I've, I've seen you. Um, I was one of about 20 film critics who was re reviewing Darling. So in those days, there were only 20 people in New York City who could make or break a film. Uh, today, there are thousands plus bloggers and all kinds of people. Um, to, uh, Sarah, to Sarah Churchwell, I have to say something. Having written The Maryland Scandal, 
about Marilyn Monroe and having interviewed everyone who had worked with her because I worked out of Hollywood myself. It quite annoys me uh, that people like you write books and have never met the principals or those who worked with her. You well, depend that, on that, secondary that, 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 that's sources. That's our ability to write anything. I mean, if we have to have met the person in order to write them, we're not going to be able to write very many books about very many writers. Uh, well, but why do you do it? Or figures. Why do you, why yeah, you right. do it? Uh, <laughs> you know, you have no real right to do it. Okay. You, have no real, you have the right, of course, but you don't have the right. All right. Uh, my third comment quickly is to uh, Ms. Ms. Jaggi. Um, I don't think it's a fact that uh, culture should be or would be or could be exclusive. Uh, I'm delighted and it's wonderful that everybody is sort of mucking in and having a say. Uh, it's just that we do want to preserve the rights of satire and caricature. <laughs> can, I just, can I just briefly, I'll just finish the point that I was making, that if, 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 we actually, if we actually limit ourselves to only writing books about people that we have met, we, first of all, will not have very much nonfiction or biography. We will also, uh, the, the notion that, that we know somebody better through having met them or through having met people that we met them is deeply dubious, oh, for heaven's sake. I was critiquing other people's work, and that's all I was. It's called criticism. That was what I was doing, and we will stop the conversation there. Well, you, you, thank you. You made your point in a very spiritual way, I, I think. And... Uh, and um, I think moving on swiftly, as they say. Um, and, uh, <laughs> could I just, no, could I just say something? Yes, because there was, a, there was a remark about the right, uh, preserving the right to satire and caricature. Yeah. Um, I second that. I mean, I, I was actually one of the first people who signed a petition when Salman Rushdie was fatwaed in, in the Valentine's Day, Iranian fatwa in 1989. Uh, so I, I don't see any contradiction between what I'm advocating. What, what I see is, is a better understanding of other cultures is required. If you were to understand Islam uh, or Islamic culture or Middle Eastern culture, Asian culture, from the activities of some uh, extremist, violent terrorists, lunatics then you're already making a mistake in, in, in making that conflation, I think. Um, would either gentleman like to come in on this point? If not, I'll move on. I will move on. Uh, yes, the gentleman has now got the microphone. In, 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 uh, in line with the... Could you say, actually, could, I should uh, invite everybody to say who they are very quickly. Richard Bronkett, European Institute. In, in line with the first three um, uh, talks, and in defence of a sort of postmodernism light, I guess, and its central lesson that there's no single right perspective on life and that we can learn so much by entering into different perspectives on life and different angles on them. I quite agree with Jonty's point about it's great if Western canons play with others and at the Sarah's point that the most exciting thing about reading literature is when it challenges to enter a new perspective. My, my question really is, is that not in fact uh, what the best parts of the Western canon always did? As someone who studied classical literature in, uh, many, many years ago, it always seemed to me that the thing about reading Homer or Sappho or Aeschylus was that they took you into such an amazingly different world from your own and, and uh, as Sarah put it, helped to rewire your brain by seeing the world differently. And if that's the case, then why on earth would you not want to widen the canon to include great writers from outside um, that, that, that uh, narrow canon, Tolstoy, Simone de Beauvoir and Vikram Seth and so many others? 
Well, Kersler said about, about 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, Arthur Kersler said that it's now impossible to read all the books that are, that are worth reading, never mind the ones that aren't worth reading. So you have to accept the fact that you're going to make selections about what you read. Um, I, I don't confess, I announce, I, it's the truth. I haven't read a Booker Prize-winning novel for a very long time, and I don't always have a great deal of respect for the people who are given prizes. Uh, and one of those reasons is that I was once on a, on a committee uh, to judge um, the Jewish Book Award called the Wingate uh, Prize. Um, and we read, as juries will, uh, 50 or 60 or 70 books by, um, about or by Jews. I don't much favor this way of going on, but there it is. Um, and when we met, um, I was talking to Elaine Feinstein on the way in, and I said, well, I think the best book, without any question, is that one about the Arab boy who goes and uh, uh, lives with an Israeli family and what happens to him. Or what happens. I can't honestly remember what the hell happened, but something interesting did. And she said, I quite agree. I quite agree. It's much the best. And the, 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 um, the president of the uh, committee was a very distinguished uh, historian called Eli Kaduri, who I'm sure you've heard of. Uh, and Kaduri said, quite early on in the discussion, that the most interesting book is undoubtedly this biography of Goldemeyer, I think it was. So I said, I'm, I'm sure it's got a lot of new interesting stuff in it, but it's not very well written. To which Kaduri replied, there is nothing in the statutes which requires the prize-winning book to be well written. <laughs> and we all thought, oh, should have thought of that. Um, the, the standard of well-written or not actually is pretty clear. And, and I don't think that um, most people would disagree very often. There's a one, so I have to tell you one very good story. I don't know why I do, but I do, because I've saved it up. About the, uh, the, the, in the court of, uh, of Louis XIV, um, full of elite personalities, including, of course, dukes. And poets in those days were as keen to make their marks with dukes as they are today with... Uh, people who organize programs on the BBC. And the young poet handed a two-line poem to the Duke of whatever he was and said, I'd be very honored if you would look at this. And the Duke looked at it and he said, C'est très bien, mais il y a quelques longueurs. <laughs> it's fine, but there are some boring bits. The elimination of the boring bits, the elimination of the cliches, the elimination of what has been said before in exactly the same way is part of what we should all be about. As for the audience and how many of them there are and whether they really, really enjoyed it, as the Duke would say, je m'en fous. Thank you, Frederick. Anyone else like to ask a question? Yes, gentleman in the white shirt. Um, and hopefully we'll have time for one more. Uh, Nico MacDonald. Um, in terms of thinking Can you about... from? Uh, well, I'm an uh, alumnus, and uh, I run a program called Media Futures. Um, in terms of the canon, I, I wonder... We haven't really talked very much about what the value of literature is. I mean, I think Sarah's alluded to it maybe critically, but I wonder, you know, could we very crudely say it's something about helping to improve the human condition, helping to enlighten us? And is that a way of judging literature. Um, and to John T, I mean, I, I'm very much enjoying arts programming and cultural programming on the BBC, but I do wonder if you're, we've seen a flourishing, as you say, a golden age of, of the arts and visual arts, theatre and so on. 
but I wonder if it sort of becomes something you do rather than something that really transforms you. So lots of people go to Tate Modern, but are people transformed by the experience of going to Tate Modern in the way that you know, perhaps historically or perhaps we hope they would be? And I wonder if we're being a bit complacent about that. And just a final comment to Maya. I appreciate your comment about often non-Western writers appreciating the canon and the classics more than Western writers. And I, I do feel there's been a confusion historically where power and colonialism and race and genetics often have been confused with what is great. And it seems to me that what is great has moved around the world with different civilizations and that it happened to be Western Europe and then North America for a period was not something to do with race, it was to do with power a bit. Um, but if we confuse those things, then we don't see what's universal. And there is a universalism about what Europe and America has created intellectually, which is applicable to and has often been contributed by and emulated by people in the rest of the world. And it seems to me that was at the root of the confusion in the 60s and 70s, as our chair, uh, I think, alluded to, uh, not agreeing with me, obviously, uh, in his opening remarks. Mayor, do you have any reflections on that? Um, well, I, I, I started with uh, Derek Walcott um, and Wallace Schreinke, and something that both of those writers have been criticised for is actually being Eurocentric, which is one of the words that came up in, in their allusion to uh, classic, classical literature and traditions. But actually, a lot of the criticism about those writers has come from people who don't understand where the other things that were different, they see what was similar. Mm -hmm. They see the Homeric tradition or, or um, Greek tragedy being worked through Schoenker's plays, but they don't understand Yoruba mythology or they don't understand Creole. Um, so I think part of what's shifted and needs to shift more is both to recognize those writers as working within a Western tradition, and that's the result of colonialism and now glo globalization, uh, and to recognize that, but also to have a better understanding. And again, I allude to, to our understanding of the Islamic world, which is very <coughs> better understanding of what else they are bringing. And it's a, kind of, it's a kind of synthesis, it's a kind of hybridity which speaks to, to our Western tradition but also brings in other things. Um, and that we know partly as a result of that shift of power, I suppose. That we're talking about. Time for one more, one more question. Um, yes, the gentleman at the back in the dark chairs. Hi, an under undergraduate from King's College from across the road. My question is for Frederick. You said you read classics. Do you think the term classics is sort of itself problematic in that it only refers to Greek and Roman cultures? Because Mary Beard, speaking at the Jaipur Literature Festival last year, informed us that Sanskrit was almost introduced in 1890 along with Latin and Greek, and had that gone ahead, today the field would have been very different. I'm terribly sorry, my hearing is poor and my vanity is great. <coughs> what was the question? The classics, not just about Latin and Greek. Sanskrit, for Yes, example. it's a good question. I, I, the truth about classics is, first of all, that if we hadn't been obliged to jump those particular hurdles when we were young, because they were the hurdles which led to the, the winner's podium, so to speak, if you, if you did it quite well, um, 
why would I ever have done that? I mean, I was a small boy in New York City, and nobody in New York City, apart from two or three people in some strange establishment, was doing Latin and Greek. I was only a small boy, but nevertheless, when I came to England at the age of eight, um, I naturally, as it used to be, began to do Latin. And like most small children, I will imbibe anything, which is one of the reasons why, funnily enough, people tend to have the religions into which they were born and very rarely acquire ones from elsewhere, though they do do that, or they just drop them. For my money, that sooner they drop them. But the classics has got an abiding charm, and it is that it has absolutely no utility. Uh, There's a lot to be said for a, a form of study which is beautiful in its own sake. This doesn't mean that there isn't a canon. There is a canon. When I arrived here this morning, I was escorted to the green room by a, a, a very nice-looking young, uh, young female who was a student here. And I said, what are you reading? And she said, history. And I said, ah, have you read um, Lucian's history essay on historians? And of course, she hadn't, and why the hell should she have? But she hadn't. Um, in a sort of ludicrous form of benign activity. I like to try and tell young people about things they don't know about rather than confirm them in the prejudices they already have. So I said, well, you should read Lucian, and then when you do your PhD or whatever it is, get a good quotation from Lucian and put it at the top, and it, it'll work marvels. And this was not by accident, because when I was uh, doing uh, my scholarship at Cambridge, in those days we went up and tried to get scholarships, um, not a bad way of sorting out sheep from goats, if you believe that sheep are different from goats, and I'm never quite sure which one is better, actually. Goats apparently like to watch other goats having sex with other goats. Did you know that? Well, I learned that by reading a book on ancient sexuality by... Um, I can't remember his name now. Anyway. Um, David Cohen. Um, I didn't know, actually. Uh, why bother? One of the reasons is this strange quality that classicists, I think, have. A, of being hermetically in a club, which is very enjoyable. But B, the club is very generous. I am actually... I mean, I got a a classical scholarship at Cambridge, which, as you can tell by the fact that I'm telling you, I'm very proud of. But how I got it was exactly the same way that I told this young woman today. I happened to get an essay on the arts and their relation to life. Ah, eternal topic. And at the top of my general paper essay, never mind having done Greek verses, Latin verses, Latin proses, all the other things we had to do, at the top I wrote, the arts is one of the four things that unite men to a Genev. Now, if there had been vivas at Cambridge in those days, I would not have got a major scholarship because somebody would have said to me, some acid don would have said to me, uh, who is this to Genev you quoted? At which point, I'm sorry to say, I wouldn't know. Nevertheless, the lovely thing about the classics is, as Dr. Johnson proves it in this country, the classics actually provided ladders to high or high-ish places by virtue of the fact that it could be very accurately marked and very properly understood. Now, an enormous amount of classical uh, studies in England now is done in translation. I'm all in favour of that. I wouldn't know what to do without my lower editions. But you have to recognise that these things are very different. They are indeed very old. And there's some kind of pride involved in, in, in having access to something which is level but also somewhat bumpy. And the classicists have another tradition which 
honoured enormously by all of the various professors I know in that domain. They will always answer your questions with clarity insofar as they can, with, with citations of, of the appropriate place to look. Some are dishonest, but they rarely get very far. So there is a code of honour which is quite different from elitism or esteem. And honour, of course, leaks over into the word timi in, in, in ancient Greek, is always translated as honour, but it also has a very high element of esteem in it. Um, there is something good about being good at things. And when people say that we need level playing fields, all the well, you need level playing fields for hockey, but you don't need them for hurdles. In fact, it's jumping over the hurdles which make that particular playing field interesting. So it's a mistake, I think, to suppose that what we should all be aiming at is this, um, this kind of unified culture which everybody understands everybody else perfectly. Civil wars are the wars in which most of the people involved understand each other perfectly. Uh, it's a very dangerous notion that we should all understand. It's difficult to understand other people. It's difficult to know what Marilyn was doing and why she was doing it, which doesn't mean that a portrait can't be painted of Marilyn doing it, whether it's in prose or any other way. It does mean that even Sarah Churchill doesn't actually know why she committed suicide. How would you know that? <coughs> if indeed she did commit suicide. Well, you can read and my s- book and find out what I actually think. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a pleasure. Well, Fred, Frederick, thank you for helping us to go out with a, with a, with a bang and not a, a, not a whimper. Um, that, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, some of you all really missed um, uh, arresting observations, I think, came in those very final remarks of yours. But um, unfortunately, and we could go on very happily, I know, for, for, for hours, I take, I take some comfort, being more of a Tate, Tate Britain than a Tate modern man, as you'll probably want to discern, uh, I was curious to know what this outcome of this health check on, the, on high culture in the Western canon was going to be. Um, I think I can take it uh, from the discussion that it is actually in pretty rude good health, but you should just remember that it's not the only healthy, healthy presence a healthy body and physiognomy around. Um, and, um, well, perhaps to an extent I anticipated that, that outcome, but it doesn't mean to say that the travelling to it hasn't been absolutely fascinating and enriching, thanks to our tremendous panel, Sarah and John T and Maya and, Fre- and Frederick. And I'm sure that in time on at LSE, we will want to record our appreciation for what has really been a terrific hour and a half. <laughs>